Conversations. Hello everyone, Med Conversations is back after another characteristic uh, long pause. <laughs> and today we've got Scott teaching myself, Beck, and Davor about antibiotics. We're very excited about this, uh, but we need to apologise in advance that there might be a little bit of toing and froing because Davor and my baby daughter Zala is joining us on the cast and she may express her concern about some of the content. So if Davo sneaks off, that's the reason for that. Uh, Davo, how are you going? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, as, as you said, I've got Zala strapped to my chest. I'm bouncing on the football. So we should be, we should be ready to cast. Uh, but if I need to leave, I don't have much to contribute anyway. So it doesn't matter. And the man in the moment, Scott, what are you taking us through today? So today we're going to talk about how you get good at antibiotics. Nice. So we're very ambitious. We've got a crash course in bacteria and antibiotics, and we're going to try and teach you everything you need to know up until kind of probably junior reg, apart from some other little minor stuff later on. So hopefully this is useful and listenable. I definitely I guess will our, be. A heckler will tell us if it's not, I guess. <laughs> Scott, Scott's taken us through some of the slides and I can vouch that there's some really useful stuff and really good frameworks for thinking about antibiotics and bugs. And I just remember seeking out this kind of stuff when I was a, a student and not really finding it in a, in, a, in a good format. But I think this is, this is great what you've done. Yeah, so let's get right into it. So um, there's three different ways to learn antibiotics and bugs. So you can learn the microbiology, so all the bacteria, what they're sensitive or resistant to. You can learn the antibiotics, often grouped by their class. You can learn how they work, their mechanism, and their spectrum of bugs that they kill. Or you can learn the clinical syndromes, so the empiric treatment regimens and some of the directed treatment regimens that we'll talk about later. So is this one of those choose-your-own-adventure podcasts where they can click on which which means of learning they're going to they're go down or...? No, so you kind of have to do all three. Think of it as some kind of satanic pyramid with all three microbiology, antibiotics and clinical syndrome all feeding in together in, you know, some kind of horrible way. And uh, the I more you... Of more of a beautiful synergy. <laughs> it's kind of even more depressing, those like business presentation synergy words. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> I prefer the satanic ritual. Right, um, <laughs> so, uh, and... ID doctors, when we think about bugs, we think about it in the order of clinical syndromes, including the empiric antibiotic choices. We think about the common bugs that cause it, those bugs resistance patterns, and we pick an empiric antibiotic, and then um, we later choose an antibiotic once we get the resistance back. So this ambitious podcast is going to try and summarize, start with microbiology, work our way through, um, going through lots of details, then we'll talk about some of the antibiotics and their spectrum along the way. And then probably in the second podcast, depending on how much we waffle, um, we will just really use that and try and play kind of what we call um, sepsis tetris, where we try and cover all the gaps in our antibiotic coverage and kind of play around with it to really understand what we're treating and um, what would be a really good antibiotic regimen. Awesome. Love it. Sounds good. And the key thing is that we're going to throw a lot of detail and information at you. And a lot of it's going to probably go over your head if you haven't heard of it before. But over time, it'll kind of sink in and you'll learn it from different angles. And every time you relearn it from another angle, the, the previous stuff will try and will make more sense. So don't give up if you don't have a good background. 
Yeah, and yeah, don't worry about the different names of the bugs too much, although that's, that's useful in its own way as well. But just the frameworks of thinking about them is really useful. Yeah. And I'm obviously going to use a few kind of overarching simplifications. And as you get more advanced, you'll learn the kind of the exceptions to some of the rules. So kicking right off, um, what are bacteria? So um, bacteria are a whole kingdom of species, one of the big kingdom of life. And um, that on our in our bodies, they outnumber human cells ten to one. A lot. So, crazy fact. Yeah. Go so on. maybe we're more bacteria than cells in a way. Mm. Um, and as part of that, bacteria can um, be colonizers or commensal organisms that just live on us, or they can cause disease. Um, so, so all these bugs, just you know, these ten to one group, they're just living on us, most of them. Um, you'd hope <laughs> they'd probably win if it was the other way around. <laughs> um, so bacteria are named with two words. There's always two words and they'll have the first word is the genus and the second word is the species. So you have homo sapiens or uh, like if it was obviously not a bacteria, but, um, <laughs> but <laughs> Staph Staphylococcus aureus would be a bacteria, golden staph or E. coli, Escherichia coli. So the first name is the bigger group, basically. First name is a bigger group. And sometimes um, doctors will informally use just the first name to talk about a whole group of bacteria. So I'll talk about streptococci. I'll talk about all the strep or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's lots of other terms that we use. The most important one is um, the results of a gram stain that we'll talk about, um, which you might hear words like gram-positive cocci, gram-negative rods. And we also use lots of other loose categories like atypical bugs, enteric bugs, skin organisms. And we'll try and go through some of them as well. So some really key words, are, um, as we started talking about um, pathogens, you know what a pathogen is, uh, Beck? Yeah, so pathogen is a bacteria that causes disease. So one of the baddies, as distinct from a colonizer or a commensal organism, which is one of the ones that's just hanging out there at the scene of the crime, but not actually causing any problems. Exactly. So like some of the coagnicative staph that we'll talk about, like staph epidermis, that just live on your skin. Mm. Um, and what's the difference between a colonizer and a contaminant, Davor? So a contaminant is, is a bug that has got into one of our tests. And so we've grown it, but we don't think it's actually the bug that we're looking for. It's not, not the pathogen that we're looking for. So staph epidermitis that you mentioned before is, is a good example of that. It often grows in blood cultures but it's not actually the cause of the disease that we're looking for. This is like when somebody in the shop has touched the murder weapon, but they're not actually the murderer. It's like a sampling analogy, kind of thing. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just came up with that. <laughs> That's perfect. Like well it. done. So and all, the colonizer and contaminant often overlap because sometimes we contaminate the sample we're trying to take, like a blood culture with the colonizing bugs that live on the skin or live on the um, test taker's skin as well. Um, the other, so... The two words we use are pathogenic or virulent to describe how good a bug is at causing trouble, how kind of nasty or dangerous or um, disease-causing a bug is. We call it pathogenic or virulent means exactly the same thing, um, which is different to how resistant a bug is. So resistance just describes how um, resistant a bug is to different bacteria that we use to treat it. So, Beck, um, if we want to treat a bug, even if it's not very resistant and sensitive to a lot of bacteria, should we just use 
the most broad spectrum antibiotics we can because that'll work the best. Is that how it works? <laughs> no, I think this goes back to what you said earlier, that you start off with empiric treatment where you don't really know what the bacteria is, so you treat it with a broad spectrum antibiotics, casting the net really wide, but the net has, I guess, big holes in it, if we're going to really stretch the metaphors here. Um, but oh, if, you know, if you know what it is, then you can use a, a tighter net with smaller holes and you know that you're going to grab it, so that's directed therapy. Yeah, fire with the metaphors back. It's a good one. <laughs> good work. So these are two different concepts, right? So bacteria. Later. <laughs> some ba- <laughs> so some bacteria like strep, streptococcus pyogenes, for example, is really virulent. It causes a lot of disease or staphylococcus. Um, but strep is really sensitive to a lot of antibiotics. It's not very resistant. Whereas other um, other bugs like Stenotrophomonas is really resistant to a lot of antibiotics, but it's not very pathogenic. It might just be living there and not causing any disease. And contrary to popular belief, the two often have an inverse relationship, and that makes sense because a bug that's you know using up a lot of its uh, kind of evolutionary potential to become resistant then loses some of that for pathogenicity or virulence a lot of the time. Exactly. And a lot, often the, these wild type bugs or more sensitive bugs are um, less resistant to antibiotics. So the other um, words that often confuse people are um, intracellular or extracellular and anaerobic. So intracellular just means that this bacteria lives inside other cells. So inside human body cells in, in the human case. Um, and uh, that can be um, obligate, which means it always has to live inside a human cell, or it can be facultative, which means it just, it can live inside a, you know, take it or leave it. It can do both, swings both ways. <laughs> and, and, and a, stu- a stupid question that I've definitely answered, to, but I've always wondered, is, the, uh, is an intracellular bug more likely to be an anaerobe? Is there any relationship between uh, them? I don't think so. There's a, not really. Okay. Yeah. Um, they're kind of all overlap in their classes. Um, and anaerobic bugs, it's kind of the same deal. So anaerobe means without air. So these are bugs that don't need oxygen to grow or grow better in low oxygen conditions. And if they're obligate, that means they have to not have too much oxygen. And if they're facultative, they can go either way. Okay. So... Um, just quickly to go through the process of, you know, how we talk about these bugs and what we do. So when a patient comes into the hospital, they present with a clinical syndrome, like a UTI or a pneumonia, and we treat them empirically. Um, and so we're guessing what antibiotics to use for what we think bacteria might be causing it. Uh, we then send lots of samples off to the labs, things like cultures, blood cultures, skin swabs, surgical specimens, uh, maybe PCR tests. And then the, in the lab, the samples taken and some samples they do a stain straight away, often a gram stain for blood culture, for example. And straight away, as soon as they look at it, they can say, we can see gram positive cocci, for example, or gram negative rods. Then after they report that, the lab set up the specimen on these special plates, things like horse blood agar, these little circular round things in glass and other kinds of plates as well to grow all the, see what organisms they can find in that sample. And sometimes they also do special tests and their goal is to try and work out what that bug is. And then once they've worked that out, they'll say something like, we have cultured Staphylococcus aureus or we have cultured E. coli. Then the lab runs special sensitivity tests to work out what the bug that bug is resistant to. Um, because we, we can talk about general principles of what 
antibiotics are bug is usually susceptible to, but the best way to know is to test it yourself. So the two main methods um, basically just test how the bug grows with different concentrations of antibiotic in the media around it. So the two main ways are disc diffusion or microdilution, which you don't really need to worry about. And for the more advanced um, listeners, um, we work out that concentration of antibiotic and we get something called the minimum inhibitory concentration. And we compare it with this book of breakpoints that we have. And um, if the concentration is um, less than or equal to the breakpoint, then we call the bug susceptible. But um, you don't need to worry about that. All you need to know is that we're behind those scientists in the lab are busy behind the scenes doing all these things. And then they write a little communication that goes to the doctors looking after the patient. And it's really drip fed out, isn't it? So whatever information you guys have in the lab, you tell us. Um, So there'll be an intern sitting on the ward computer just refreshing. And so at the start, they just get grand positive cocci and they're sitting there, you know, 24 hours a day. And after the first 24 hours, they're refreshing finally yields that it is Staphylococcus aureus or even just Staphylococcal species. And then you kind of hone in on on the rest of the information very gradually. And your your treatment strategy changes with that each each drip of information. What antibiotic you use is, are using is often often changes as you find out whether it's coagulase positive or negative or what it's resistant to, etc. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, now that, usually, the other thing, where you go? Oh, we usually say we broaden. I mean, this is getting pretty advanced past what we were talking about, but we usually say you broaden therapy based on the gram stain and you um, narrow it based on what bug you grow. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, but the, good. I think just to finish off the bit I was talking about, so all we'll normally write it's sensitive or resistant on that, on that bug, and we'll give a list of antibiotics and what it's sensitive or resistant to. But just remember that the lab actually has more information often, if you call them, or uh, uh, speak with your ID, Reg. And once we've got that, the final step is we stop the empiric, the guest therapy that we had, and we use directed antibiotic therapy to the bug we found and the resistance pattern that we found. It's so really a lot important of, to do that because it's more powerful, right? Yeah, exactly. So often the broader spectrum antibiotics aren't actually as powerful as the narrower spectrum antibiotics that are really good at direct to the organism, like flucloxacillin for MSSA, for example, that we'll talk about. And it's also um, really good from an antibiotic stewardship point of view. Yeah. So the most important test that we do in the lab is called the gram stain. And we could use any way to classify these, you know, hundreds of thousands of different bacteria, but the way that we could use their size, we could use their color. We could use how funny their name is. There's a vaginal bacteria called Fanny Hessiae vaginae, which will probably get its own category (laughs) if you're immature like me. Um, But Instead, we use the gram stain. And the reason we use that is it's the clinically most important thing to know because it helps us work out what antibiotic therapy we're going to give because different antibiotics work well for gram positives and different ones work well for gram negatives. Um, So the details of how the stain is done isn't that important, but there's two main stains. There's a crystal violet stain, which is purple, and there's a saffronin stain, which is pink. And purple is gram-positive antibiotics and pink is gram-negatives. And um, you can Google what that looks like. And Beck just came up with a much better um, way to remember that than I had, which is N for negative is in the word pink because they both obviously start with P. So purple for gram-positive, 
and uh, pink for gram negative with n in the word. Yeah. Alrighty. Um, and which was much better than my previous way of remembering the Ribena man was really positive in that old ad. If you're, I don't know. I think that one's going to stick <laughs> in my memory, Scott. The sillier yeah. the mnemonic, the better it is. I reckon. We're getting old. We've been doctors for too long, though. Now I don't know if the next generation remembers these dumb ads, these pointless, <laughs> um, like bits of porridge in our brain. Um, so, um, so the things are purple or pink. The other things, bacteria, little cell membranes, little sacs of cell cytoplasm, and they're two main shapes. They can be circles, which are called cocci or coccus for singular, or they can be rods, which are called bacilli. Rods and bacilli are the same thing. So um, something could be a gram-positive cocci, a gram-positive rod, gram-negative cocci, a gram-negative rod, and they're the four main categories of bacteria. Um, just to confuse you, there's a word called cocobacilli, it's, it's, which is just both or halfway in between. And diplococci just means two cocci together. But we'll just focus on rods and cocci today. So just to briefly summarize, two main ways of classifying bacteria by whether they're gram positive or gram negative and whether they're cocci or bacilli. And as, as I think you're about to say, most of the bacteria actually uh, fall into two of those four categories. Exactly. The most common ones that we worry about as doctors are gram-positive cocci, things like staph or strep, and gram-negative bacilli, things like E. coli or Klebsiella. And to link it back to the fact that bacteria are covering us and we're more bacteria than human, the gram-positive cocci usually come from the skin and the gram-negative bacilli usually live in the gut. Yeah, exactly. So what it actually means, these, the reason why the stain, the purple stain sticks is that these gram-positive um, uh, bacteria have a thick cell wall made out of peptidoglycan, which is a favourite exam question, isn't it, Beck? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I got asked that about four times during my medical student career. So pepti peptidoglycan is the layer on the cell wall and it's thick in gram-positives and thin in gram-negative organisms. Exactly. So the gram-negative organisms have this really thin layer that you can't see on the stain sandwiched between two cell membranes, which stains pink instead of purple. And we'll talk about this more later, but the gram-positives, it, it tends to be the penicillins work really well on gram-positive bacteria. Yeah, exactly. The penicillins and early um, cephalosporins. And we often need to use other antibiotics for gram-negatives because penicillin was our first antibiotic good kind of good antibiotic that they invented. So it was really important for early scientists and doctors to know if penicillin would work against the infections they were finding. So we've got a little slide, which we'll put up on our website, which is just a real bare bones summary of the big groups, which was done by my super intelligent colleague, Nadi Reg, Elise McPhail. Um, and it talks about the, the you know, gram-positive cocci, gram-positive bacilli, gram-negative cocci, gram-negative bacilli, and then some of the special categories that we'll talk about later, like things like anaerobes or um, bacteria that don't have a cell wall or a funny shape. So the easy way to remember is there's three big groups of gram-positive cocci, which is the first group we'll talk about, and there's um, uh, staphylococcus, um, streptococcus and enterococcus, and all of them have coccus in the first word. So if it's coccus in the first word, it's always a gram-positive cocci. Yeah, so staph Easy rule. staphylococci, streptococci, and enterococci. 
Yeah. Of the three main. So first we'll talk about staff, which we've done a whole podcast on. It's a really big topic because this is maybe the most important pathogenic bacteria that you have to know about as a doctor. Mm. Um, so staph lives on the skin on, or in the nose and throat, and people can be permanently or transient, transiently colonized with it. Some people shed it and have it again, and some people have it forever. And um, uh, people can also be decolonized if they've got resistant staphylococcus, um, which is a process where they um, take a special antibody ointment for a week and, and wash themselves and wash all their sheets and things and can help get rid of more resistant staff. Wash themselves in a, in a particular way. So we're, <laughs> I mean, no, no shade on anyone who's colonised with staff. We don't think that you don't wash. <laughs> exactly. So like a chlorhexidine body wash, yeah. like the same similar thing that you use for your hands in the hospital. Mm. Um, and staff is really important because it's very virulent, very pathogenic. And it's very sticky. Um, so it's a common cause of bacteremia, endocarditis, osteomyelitis, um, septic arthritis, and post-surgical wound infections, rare, very rarely pneumonia. Um, and uh, it's got, there's three big groups of staff that you'll hear about. And sometimes people will just use these words instead of talking about staff. So it can be a bit confusing. Do you know what the three words are, Beck? Yeah, so the three acronyms, as in PSSA, MSSA, MRSA, is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly, three acronyms. So, so yeah. So my understanding of this is that the uh, they describe the resistance pattern. And like you said, often when the lab writes a report of the results of a culture, they won't say Staphylococcus aureus, they'll, they'll specifically say one of these things. So PSSA stands for penicillin-sensitive Staphylococcus aureus. MSSA is methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus. And MRSA is methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. And that's kind of going in order of resistance. So PSSA means that you can treat it with just a penicillin, like benzyl penicillin. And, and you don't see a lot of that, uh, but if you're going to get a staph aureus, it's probably what, what you'd want, yeah? Yeah, it's the easiest to treat. And MSSA in Australia is the most common, so it's methicillin-sensitive staph aureus. And it's a bit confusing because we don't use methicillin anymore, but methicillin is the same, is a class of antibiotics called anti-staphylococcal penicillins, which also has flucloxacillin, which you'll see a ton. Yeah. Um, and they use, sometimes use oxacillin overseas, isn't the same, the same one. Actually, and, at, at my hospital, they, they actually report it as OSSA, so oxacillin sensitive staph aureus. Why not just go to FSSA? FSSA? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Um, I haven't seen that before. Um, and MRSA is um, methicillin resistant, so staph aureus. So it's resistant to all penicillins. So we treat it with vancomycin because it's changed the penicillin binding site. So it's, there's no penicillin they can make, which will work. Um, the other really key thing is if you see staph aureus in blood, because it's so sticky and pathogenic, we always treat it as not a colonizer, even though it does grow on the skin. So theoretically it's possible. So we always treat it with at least two weeks of IV therapy to make sure we've flushed out of all its sticky hiding holes um, in your um, vasculature system. So that, if you're, the, sorry, Scott, I keep interrupting you. That's okay. If you're a junior doctor and you're doing the, the 
rounds of, you know, paper rounds, checking the results, and you see that a patient's culture has come back with staph aureus, that is something that you need to pick up the phone and call your registrar about. So that's not something to wait, wait until later in the day or the next day. You need to act on that right now and, um, and, and you need to make sure you get this patient on the right antibiotics. Absolutely. But it's also, I think, important to be aware that you may not have a culture, as we said before, that immediately says staph aureus. It might be gram-positive cocci. And that's why it's, you know, you need to know something about the taxonomy of these bacteria because you need to know that gram-positive cocci could mean staph aureus, which is a very scary thing to have in your blood, as we've said. Exactly. And before antibiotics, almost all people would die of um, staph aureus bloodstream infection. So it was really serious. And you should, any staph aureus in blood, you should always call ID. We're very happy you've called. So the other group directly, he'll put his number up later. (laughs) Yeah, just call me any any time of the night. I just I just love it. (laughs) I can't get enough. I love my staff. So uh, coag negative staff is the next group of gram positive cocci resembling staff. So the next big group of gram positives. Can we just briefly jump in and explain what coag negative and coag positive is? Yeah, so it's a test that they do in the lab and they basically check if something coagulates. So it's called coagulase negative um, or coagulase positive. And it's important for us because coagulase positive, um, the, the main important, the only really important pathogen we need to know about is staph aureus. So if you see coagulase positive, think staph aureus. And coag negative is a whole group of other bugs which also can live on the skin but are often less virulent and less pathogenic than staph. So some examples are staph epidermidis, um, epidermidis, because it lives on the skin, on the epidermis. And there's lots of other ones like staph hominis, staph hemolyticus, staph capitis. So whenever you have a coag negative staph, um, we're very happy if you want to discuss with ID to work out whether they're a contaminant or colonizer or whether they're a pathogen. And when they're pathogenic, which is pretty rare. Usually it's only in someone with an artificial heart valve or a prosthetic joint. Um, many of them are methicillin resistant like MRSA and need treatment with vancomycin like MRSA does. That's just a little side note for the ones that aren't contaminants. So next we've got um, the gram positive cocci resembling strep. So streptococci is a, a genus, one of the first word, and it includes lots and lots of species. And I found this really confusing um, uh, as a med student and kind of junior doctor with all these different categories that with some overlapping words, but the main three, the three groups you'll hear about are describing what the bacteria looks like when they grow it on one of those blood agar plates. And there's three groups that they'll talk about. So the first group is called alpha, um, alpha hemolytic, and that's, um, partial hemolysis which turns green on the plate which you don't really need to worry about but there's basically only two really important groups here there's strep pneumoniae most common uh one of the most common uh, bacteria causing pneumonia so a really good one to know about and can also cause meningitis um it lives in the mouth or um, oropharynx and there's lots of different variants called serovars and you can be immunized against a lot of them. So a lot of people over 65 in Australia are, are recommended to get something called the Pneumovax 23, which immunizes you against 23 of the um, most common pathogenic serovars uh, or variants of strep pneumonia. Oh, cool. um, 
a little bit more, something a little bit more advanced about it is there's increasing levels of intermediate resistance in this group. And sometimes when it's intermediately resistant to penicillin, we, um, uh, it means that if you've got meningitis with strep pneumonia, because the penicillin doesn't get into your CSF and into your brain as well as it gets into your lungs, sometimes it's not quite enough to get in there. So sometimes we use keftraxone or even vancomycin. Right. Okay. What's so the other alpha-hemolytic uh, strep? So the other one is a group called strep viridans. I used to think it was a species, but strep viridans is, is actually a group of different strep. And there's a lot of different ones, but it's basically a group that, um, that live in the mouth. And there's some examples are strep sanguinis, strep mitis, strep mutans. And it's easy to remember that it's in this green category because viridans comes from verdant, meaning green, um, names because it looks green on the plate which is this partial green hemolysis. Until that very moment, I thought it was its own species. Yeah. <laughs> taught me something, it's, Scott. It's very confusing. So just to just so that we have our bearings a bit, we've talked about staphylococcus. Now we're talking about streptococcus. And Scott, you've just told us the different kinds of streptococcal species that are alpha hemolytic. And... We talked about strep pneumonia, which is an organism in itself, and then the strep viridans group, which comprises various other organisms. And they're both green, were you saying? Yeah, they're both green. And you could remember that because strep viridans, verdant for green. Um, that's the way to remember it. But you can remember I that guess... if you, those of you who are really good at Latin or, or Greek or... Yeah. <laughs> And look, this, this stuff's pretty advanced. So if you don't remember all the details, that's fine. As long as you remember the general principles and you, yeah. you at least recognize the words of the categories we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. We'll, okay. We'll so give you the cheat code hemolytic. later on. Yeah. So strep viridans group was the last one we talked about. Lives in the throat and mouth. and can cause dental infections or sometimes endocarditis and um, bone or joint infections as well. Um, so the next big group of strep is probably the most confusing group because um, it's the beta hemolytic strep. And all that means is complete hemolysis. So when, it, when you're on the plate, the, the plate, the blood agar is red like blood because it comes from horse blood. And then um, when this little bacteria colony is growing there, it's hemolyzed all the, um, the pigments in the blood. And so it's clear. You can see right through it. That's awesome. So, yeah. That's yeah. And you can have a Google if you want to see what it looks like. And, these beta hemolytic strep are further grouped up into an even more confusing category called Lansfield groupings, which this is probably just for exam questions now, to be honest. You probably don't need to worry about it too much unless you've got an exam in the next three months. But the most important, it goes all the way from A all the way down to R. And the most important one is group A strep, which is also called strep pyogenes. And, and that's bad, isn't it? Really bad. So I think strep pyogenes, pyogenic, it's really virulent. It causes really nasty, severe disease. It can cause strep throat. It can cause cellulitis. It can cause necrotizing fasciitis. It can mm. cause toxic shock or it can trigger rheumatic fever or um, glomerulonephritis. It's a really pathogenic and important bug. Mm. But despite being really virulent, it's actually very penicillin sensitive. So penicillin is the treatment for it, and it's the best treatment for it as well. Okay. Right. 
So that's beta hemolytic strep, or there's some more some more beta hemolytic streps to mention. Well. Yeah, so there's lots of other ones. Um, there's um, there's group B strep, also called strep agalactiae, which is important in screening pregnant women before they have babies because it can cause neonatal infections. And then there's lots of other ones like group C strep, strep discalactiae, group D strep, strep bovis, um, and it goes all the way down to R, and you can find. Lots of rare and weird and wonderful strep species. But the most important thing to just remember is group A strep is the most important. And you can kind of look up some of the other ones and just don't get confused between group A strep and people saying alpha hemolytic because that always used to confuse me as well. That, yeah, that and mm. to this day still confuses me. I think that's a really important thing to point out. That alpha hemolytic strep and group A strep are not the same thing. And maybe you can use that to remember that it's in the other category. And then we come to the third kind of thing that a bacteria, a strep can look like on a bacterial plate, and that's there's no hemolysis. So the bacteria hasn't cleared any of the pigment behind it or changed any of the color. It's not green or clear. Yeah. And that actually isn't a strep, that's enterococcus. So enterococcus used to be called a strep, and now we've given it its own genus, its own first word. Mm -hmm. um, and there's only two kinds you need to know about, and they're enterococcus fecalis and enterococcus fecium. So both have poo in the name and they they live in the gut so that's how you remember that this is the only gram positive well the only common gram positive bug that um lives in the gut so it and the other that's the one important thing to know about it and the other important thing to know is it's got a bit of a different resistance pattern to some of the other gram positive bugs and antibiotics so often enterococcus isn't as virulent as staph or strep it you know divides a bit slower and it causes a bit less severe disease a lot of the time, or at least slower disease, but it can sometimes cause important infections. Um, uh, so occasionally endocarditis, occasionally prosthetic device infections in shoulder joints or knees and things, mm. or um, more rarely gut intra-abdominal infections. It's quite sticky, right? It likes sticking to, uh, to, to prosthetic stuff in particular. So yeah, although I guess I, I would say that it's not kind of really super good at being sticky like staff, but it's more that it's really wussy and really weak if it's got nothing to stick to. It's a bit right. dependent on finding something to stick to um, or an easy site to, um, for it to cause a good going infection. It's a, bit, sure, yeah. it's a bit wimpy, we say. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And the, the last thing to know about enterococcus right is like, you said there's two of them, Fecalis and Fecium. And one of them is, is particularly bad and the other one is less bad. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So fecalis S at the end for sensitive. So it's sensitive to a lot. Of, often it's often sensitive to amoxicillin and um, sensitive to vancomycin as well. And um, enterococcus fecium, M for monster, um, is often really resistant. So that can often be something called VRE, which is, just stands for vancomycin resistant enterococcus, which can be either one, but it's usually enterococcus fecium. So if you ever see a VRE infection, then you should chat with ID because often we need to use, it's even resistant, not only to penicillins, but also to vancomycin. So often we need to use fancy antibiotics like daptomycin or tycoplanin. The real big guns out. The way I remember that fecium is the bad one is fecium is a bum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one. yeah, monster bum. Got yeah. me through a lot, of, a lot of medicine. So... Just to revise all the gram-positive types, we've got the first group, which are gram-positive cocci resembling staph. And when they do the 
remember when the blood culture or something goes to the lab, then they do the gram stain. They'll be able to see the pattern of how the, um, these um, bacteria are sitting on the gram stain. And if they're in clumps, they'll call it um, resembling gram-positive cocci resembling staph aureus. If it's in clusters of grapes, like golden staph, or it could be coag-negative staph. And if the gram-positive cocci are in lines, then they'll say gram-positive cocci resembling strep, which is more likely to be um, streptococcus or enterococcus. And then a couple of days later, you'll get the final culture result. Yeah. So there's some really good diagrams of this kind of stuff online, but there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of decision points that the lab has to go through. You know, first it decides staph or strep, and then it decides once it's got that, if, it, if it's a staph, you know, is it coagulase positive or negative? And if it's a strep, you know, whether it's alpha hemolytic, beta hemolytic or, or gamma hemolytic. Exactly. All right, cool, Scott. So that's a really good summary of staph and strep. But there are some gram positives that aren't cocci, but are actually rods. Can you tell us a bit about them? Yeah, so the next big category is gram positive rods. So there's a few different important ones that cause pretty different syndromes. And really, you just need to learn these individually. There's only a couple to learn. The first big one is you might hear about C. difficile, Clostridium difficile, causing C. difficile colitis or pseudomembranous colitis. And this is a really important infection, um, cause of infectious gastroenteritis, particularly after taking antibiotics where you've cleared out all the normal gut flora and this bug just takes over and it's resistant to a lot of different antibiotics. And we actually treat it with oral vancomycin. So as an intern, that's, it's an easy trick to fall into. So if, if you're treating C difficile colitis, you don't treat it with IV vancomycin, you treat it with oral vancomycin because you just eat the vancomycin and it just sits in your gut. Mm, and because so this not bug actually absorbed. Exactly. It's not absorbed. But because this bug just causes gut infections, it doesn't go into the blood or cause other kinds of infections. It works really well by just eating it. Is it a tablet or is it like a drink? A tablet. Oh, uh, I'm not sure. I'm impressed that you know that. I, I, I just write it down and then somebody else. Yeah, doctors it don't know. I love it when patients are like, what color is that tablet? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a tablet, but yeah. In any case, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> so CD for you see a lot of it on the wards because the wards uh, are full of patients taking other antibiotics, which, as you said, is a risk factor for that. So these are patients um, who need special contact precautions. So that's CD for What are the other clostridium or clostridia? Yeah, so um, the other clostridia are Clostridium perfringens, which is a cause of gas gangrene, which can cause necrotizing fasciitis or necrotizing soft tissue infections. We really don't see that that much, but if you do see it, it often needs urgent surgery and um, uh, it's treatable with penicillin, um, but it can occasionally also cause a, a normal, more standard infectious gastroenteritis as well. The, the next type of Clostridium is Clostridium tetani. What do you think that causes double? My cause tetanus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So all over muscle contractions, so hypertonic um, contractions, and it's got a really high mortality. And once the symptoms have started appearing, it's hard to treat. So we try and vaccinate people and give them booster shots if um, they are exposed to uh, cuts and lacerations that might have little anaerobic clostridium tetani growing there, things like, you know, rusty nails and... Um, 
other soil contaminated things. The next group is Clostridium botulinum. Mm. And do you know what that does, Beck? Uh, no, I'm not too sure what that does. Is that a Botox? Oh, yeah, I've heard of that before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> comes from. Beck, big fan, big yeah. plastic surgery fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, Clotridium botulinum. <laughs> I feel like now everyone's like Googling Rebecca Foskey. Has she had Botox? I haven't. Yeah. I haven't had Botox. <laughs> Just for migraines, though, right? It's <laughs> I think it works because it'd be hard to imagine you getting Botox. But, um, <laughs> so, this bacteria produces that same toxin that keeps all our rich people looking sexy and expressionless. Mm. And it, so it causes a flaccid paralysis, so a low tone paralysis, as opposed to tetanus, which caused a really hypertonic, rigid paralysis. We had a brief tangent. We had a cracker case of this, and it took us a while to figure out what it was, because it looks a lot like Guillain Barre syndrome, and it's so rare that you don't think of it. Um, but then we got this history that uh, I can't remember what culture this was from, but as part of their culture, they uh, bury some meat underneath the house for like a few weeks and then cook it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and shortly after that, came in paralyzed. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you it's go. History, 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 history. Go. Actually, um, just, just quickly, the other, the other clinical relevance of this is that you can't give babies honey because um, they can have spores of clostridium but um, oh. chulinum. So that's why you can't give babies honey. Mm. And you can actually get sterile honey that's um, somehow made sterile that you can use for wounds as well as emerging evidence. Yeah. Oh, of course. And that's why it's important for it to be sterile. That's interesting. Now, what's yeah. the last, um, last gram positive rod, Scott? So, yeah, apart from all those clostridia, the other really important one is Listeria monocytogenes. And that can cause a gastro-like syndrome, which is often pretty mild and self-limited. But in neonates or in the elderly, it can cause really severe deadly disease with meningitis or sepsis. Mm, so this is why I couldn't have soft cheeses for nine months last year. Um, mm. Because if a pregnant woman gets listeria, the uh, mortality rate for the fetus is extremely high. It's very, very rare, but very, very bad. How do you treat it? You treat it with IV Benpen or ampicillin or Bactrim. And I'm just mentioning it here because it's one of those bugs which doesn't fit well into our standard kind of groups of uh, bugs which are susceptible to different antibiotics. It's often kind of considered a separate thing. Um, and, that, so, and that's why when an elderly person comes in with meningitis, we, we give them Benpen on spec. Exactly. You'll see the guidelines say over 65 or immunocompromised had um, benzoyl penicillin or ampicillin to meningitis empiric treatment. So the other kinds of gram-positive rods are a bit rarer and probably not as important. Things like Carinibacterium um, anthrax, the syndrome caused by Bacillus anthracis, and Nocardia, which is really interesting, uh, more common in immunocompromised people, but we won't go into it today. And uh, just here, I wanted to stop and go through another kind of cheap way to quickly get a good handle on all the bacteria and give you an easy way to study for exams. And if you want to learn all the bacteria, or at least be able to guess whether they're a gram-positive cocci or gram-positive rod, so you don't look stupid when you do your ID rotation, or you've got a really, you know, uh, up to you know, smart, I don't know, other physician who loves learning <laughs> all the details and quizzing people on stuff they probably don't need to know anyway. Um, then just learn if you learn the gram-positive cocci, they've got 
all they've all got coccus in the name remember staph strep and enterococcus and then if you learn these five gram positive rods so clostridium species listeria crinibacterium anthrax and nocardia if it, you haven't already said it it's probably a gram negative rod mm. most yep. most of right. the pathogenic bacteria are yeah so learn eight bacteria and then everything else is gram negative bacilli yeah most of it except for um the only other example we'll talk about is Neisseria gonorrhea that's the only one yeah all right scott that was a really good summary of gram positive bugs but as you say we group them as gram positives because that's uh that's really important for treatment so i guess the next thing to talk about is what it, what is the treatment what are these antibiotics that we use to to treat gram positive uh cocker or gram positive bugs i should say they're not all cocker yeah so first we'll talk about um the some of the antibiotics and then we'll talk about the kinds of treatment classes so to help everyone think about them in their head and to help us play tetris later so the first big group is beta-lactams and beta-lactam is just a chemical um like a ring of um atoms like a little part of a molecule a little ring and that's a really general category that includes penicillins cephalosporins and carbapenems so everything from amoxicillin through to tazacin and then all the things like keftraxone and kefazolin and carbapenem the most common one we use in australia is meropenem but they all end in enem so imipenem erdipenem um there's a few other ones as well and they're all beta lactams all those so they're all beta you mentioned yeah it's like a super family of antibiotics and they're generally the antibiotics that we give for gram-positive infections. And as a, as a rough rule, penicillins and some of the early generation cephalosporins are the ones that we use for most gram-positive infections. Mm-hmm. And the more resistant infections, we often treat with vancomycin. Whereas carbapenems not only cover gram-positives, but also we often use them for gram-negatives. And so and is vancomycin, is that a beta-lactam as well? No, so vancomycin isn't a beta-lactam, but it also works on the cell wall, which is why we also use it for gram-positives. Right, and so that's probably why it's such a good uh, antibody for resistant organisms, right? Because it works on the same part of the bacteria that the beta-lactams do, but just through a different method. Exactly. So um, first we'll start off with penicillins. And I found this really confusing when I was a junior doctor um, because we've got this class of this whole group of antibiotics called penicillins. And then within that, we've got some that are just called penicillin and then some that have another name, but they're still a kind of penicillin. So we've got- Mm, They really need rebranding, don't they? I don't know who their PR person is. (laughs) So the first one is, you might hear it called penicillin V or just penicillin or oral penicillin. Um, and the IV version is benz, or benzyl penicillin. Is a, it's a slightly different penicillin, and, but they're kind of the earliest ones. Penis, benzyl penicillin is also called penicillin G. And you're probably already confused. But mm, And there's also phenoxy. What's that other one? The other name for the yeah. oral penicillin, phenoxy benzyl. Phenoxymethyl penicillin. So methyl penicillin. <laughs> the confusing, the first penicillins that are like the standard penicillins are penicillin V, phenoxymethyl penicillin is one of them. Or the, or the one that's often intravenous or intramuscular is benzyl penicillin or penicillin G. Mm. And kind of roughly 
also very early and kind of fairly narrow in its spectrum is amoxicillin, which works against a couple of other special bugs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and amoxicillin also works against some uh, of the anaerobes that live in the mouth, some of the more sensitive anaerobes. Um, and amoxicillin is also important because it works against some of the sensitive enterococcus that we talked about. So some of the, often the enterococcus, remember if it was fecalis or um, fecium, which one was sensitive? Uh, Fecalis. S for sensitive. Yeah, exactly. So that's so the first then, group. So that, yeah, these narrow spectrum pelicillins is first group. So apart from the enterococcus fecalis example you just gave, they're mostly really just for streps. Is that right? Uh, there's lots of other uses as, as well, but strep is probably the most important yeah. big big category that we really commonly use them for. Things like cellulitis or um, a strep throat infection. Okay, cool. Um, the next group is uh, flucloxacillin, which is an anti-staphylococcal penicillin. And overseas, they use another drug, which is basically the same called oxacillin. And that's a group of penicillins called anti-staphylococcal penicillins, which was made to help against staph infections. When the staph had started becoming resistant to the old school penicillins and they needed to invent something a bit more swish. So that's what we often use for MSSA, methicillin sensitive staph aureus, but that isn't, whereas the penicillins you can use for PSSA, penicillin sensitive. It's talking and, about those old school penicillins. And fluclox and its relatives. So it still does cover strep, right? But just not quite as well as the narrow spectrum penicillins. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the next two categories that you'll often, antibiotics that are really common that you'll often see are augmentin. And this can confuse people, but augmentin is actually a combination of amoxicillin and something else called clavulanate. And Clavulanic clavi- acid is the other name for that. Exactly, clavulanate or clavulanic acid, and that's a beta-lactamase inhibitor. So some of these resistance mechanisms that the bugs developed were these enzymes called beta-lactamases. And they are called beta-lactamases because they hydrolyze or break down beta-lactams, which is a whole big group of antibiotics that we talked about. And this is also confusing, and we'll talk about it in the next podcast when we talk about gram-negative resistance, but there's some narrow spectrum beta, um, beta lactamases that work against some of the old school penicillins, but don't work against fluclox, um, the anti-staphylococcal penicillins or augmentin. Once you add on the beta lactamase inhibitor breaks down the beta lactamase. So the, the bacteria are defending themselves. They've got this weapon with the beta lactamase inhibitor, which is shooting all the antibiotic that's coming towards it. So then the antibiotic adds on a, another weapon that shoots the defensive weapon and shoots the beta-lactamases. Cool. So what are some of the com- common bugs that Augmentin covers that Fluclox doesn't, like the names of them? So it, it will cover a lot more gram negatives and a lot more anaerobes that Fluclox does. And Augmentin is a pretty good all-round antibiotic that we use a lot in the hospital because it's got good gram positive cover, good gram negative cover, and pretty good anaerobe cover as well. Right, okay. Um, the next bug uh, combination penicillin that you'll see a lot in the hospital is called tazacin. And that's another combination of piperacillin, which is a, um, another swish penicillin that's a bit more broad spectrum and, um, and still works against some of the bugs that have developed resistance to the old school penicillins. 
combined with, on top of that, tazobactam, which is another beta-lactamase inhibitor that breaks down some of these defensive beta-lactamases. The key thing here is that giving someone tazacin doesn't really add much gram-positive cover. Mainly it adds gram-negative cover and anaerobic cover and a bit of pseudomonas cover that we'll talk about in the next episode. So, so not everyone needs tazacin. Is that the major difference between augmented and tazacin? Pseudomonas cover? Uh, it's, it's got a little bit more um, gram-negative and anaerobic cover as well, but the main difference is... Um, Pseudomonas cover. So for most people, unless they're immunocompromised, you just need pretty broad general antibiotics for um, an abdominal infection. Augmentin is a good option and it comes in an IV um, formulation as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, So, and just to quickly kind of summarize the side effects, there's a couple of little extra bits, but it's, um, most penicillins and actually most cephalosporins as well have actually pretty similar side effects. Um, the most common ones are things like rash, which can sometimes have an eosinophilia uh, with it as well. Sometimes a fever. Um, sometimes they can cause diarrhea or uh, obviously anaphylaxis. You can hear about lots of people with penicillin anaphylaxis. And I think we might try and do a whole episode on drug allergies later yeah, on. Yeah, that as would well. be great. It'd be a really good topic. Um, other side effects are um, AKI, kidney injury, or hepatitis, especially flu clocks for hepatitis. Mm, I've seen that before. And the other easy thing is to oversummarize, those side effects are roughly pretty similar between a lot of cephalosporins and a lot of penicillins. So if you go and read through drug side effects on ETG or MIMS or something else, Australian Medical Handbook, you'll see a lot of overlap in these big lists of symptoms. But Luckily, you don't need to sit and memorize which one's 1%, which one's 2% frequency because <laughs> they're actually pretty similar for a lot of them. So just to, just to summarize that, because there's a lot of information, it was really good. It's a really good framework. So when you're thinking about the penicillins, you can basically go from the most narrow spectrum to the most broad spectrum. And the, the most narrow spectrum is, is your kind of anti-strep focused antibiotics like Benpen and amoxicillin. And then... The next step up from there is fluclox and it's related. Or fluclocicillin. Fluclocicillin, yeah, yeah, um, which add anti-staph cover. And then after that, if you want to go broader than that, you've got augmentin and that, you know, starts adding gram-negative cover and, and anaerobe cover. And then you're, after that, the kind of the most commonly used really broad antibiotic that you see is tazacin, which is piperacillin plus tazobactam. And that's pretty similar to augmentin, but it adds a little bit more gram-negative and anaerobic cover, but most importantly, it gives you pseudomonas cover. And as you go broader, probably the antibiotic is actually less effective for the specific bug you're trying to treat. Yeah. Yeah, so now I'm going to give you my two-minute summary, everything you need to know about cephalosporins. Sounds good. So the, the first thing about cephalosporins is they have these, they're called generations which is a fancy way of just saying basically the order they invented them in or, or the, and, and kind of tried to fit them into groups that kind of made sense based on what bugs they worked against. And the fir- first generation cephalosporin, did you know what they are, Beck? Uh, so these are your cephalexin, cephazolin. Yeah, so these are the first ones. So these have um, pretty good gram-positive cover, 
and even work against a couple of very susceptible gram negatives, like a real susceptible E. coli, but mainly a gram positive antibiotic and pretty good staph cover as well. And I as think we of go them as pretty analogous to flu clocks. Is that a good way to Kefazolin, basically think of it as pretty interchangeable with flu clocks. That's right. Um, and that's why you'll see it used a lot in um, a surgical prophylaxis because it's got really good staphylococcus, staph aureus cover, which is probably the most important uh, surgical um, infection pathogen. And it's also got a little bit of gram negative cover as well to cover some of those susceptible gut bugs. Um, and as we go from the first generation to the higher generations, the um, Kephalosporins work better against gram negatives. So um, is kind of the general rule. So the next second generation is Kefiroxine. And that mainly is, is the only one you'll kind of commonly see from that category. And that mainly adds a little bit of anaerobic cover. We don't really use it much in Australia, mainly for ear infections. Yeah, I, but, I very rarely see it. Then the next antibiotic, which is maybe the most important one in the hospital, is called keftriaxone. It's the real workhorse antibiotic that we use quite a lot for people who are moderately sick and come into hospital. And that adds a lot of gram-negative cover. Um, this antibiotic is uh, so important that these um, class third-generation cephalosporins is kind of the turning point where we define what's a really resistant gram negative bug or not that we'll talk about later. Mm. But a bug being the extended spectrum beta lactamases. So beta -lacta, these beta lactamase defensive bacterial enzymes that's, that eat antibiotics, the really extended spectrum ones that work really well and are hard to treat with antibiotics, they're defined as being resistant to keftriaxone. That's yeah. how you define something as being an ESBL. That's a really good point. So yeah, the way I remember Keftraxin is third generation. It's, it's got a try in its name. That's, that's really useful. That is beautiful. Yep. I think it's really ripe for um ripe for wordplay. Keftry anything. <laughs> Vitamin C. Yeah, yeah. You'll see so many patients in the hospital on this, and basically anyone who comes in to an ED with a high CRP often gets it. So some people also call it um, Keftraxin requiring protein. There you go. Would you, would you say some people or, or did you come up with that one yourself, Scott? Is there a copyright did, but... on this? Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm hoping you to, for it to get out there. Do you expect royalties for people to use it using that or are you just content with, with, the, with the joke? I, I just want a footnote world. on all their publications, really. Okay. That's all, all I right. really okay. asked for. Oh, yeah. okay. um, be fine. And then, so Keftraxone is pretty good gram-negative cover. It's a real workhorse pretty good gram-negative antibiotic, but won't cover ESBLs, so maybe less useful in places with really high ESBL rates, like America or some parts of Europe and Asia. Um, but it's not as quite as good for covering all the gram-positives. And if you really have a really invasive infection like endocarditis or a joint infection with Staph aureus, then you're better off using Kefazolin or Fluclox. The next antibiotic that um, I wish someone had told me this easy rule when I was uh, learning about the antibiotics is keftazidine. That's also a, uh, a third generation kephalosporin. Mm -hmm. And that's basically exactly the same as keftraxone, except you get um, pseudomonas cover and lose your staph aureus cover. What, or what, what staph cover that you had, remembering that keftraxone isn't perfect for staph either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good to know. Good to know. All right, Gen 4. Fourth generation, kefepine. This is a really important antibiotic often used in ICU 
um, and for patients who are immunocompromised because it has more ESP, it works against a lot of the ESBLs, the expanded spectrum beta-lactamases that are resistant to ketraxone. And it also has good pseudomonas cover um, and it has pretty reasonable CSF penetration as well. So you might see it used in meningitis and ventriculitis. Mm. Um, the last generation we'll talk about today is keftaroline, which basically wrecks our whole rule and tries Aye. to, yeah, stop the rule all the... being the increasing gram negative cover with, the yeah. Generations, yeah. with yeah. every generation. Yeah. yeah. So keftaroline, they basically specifically designed a new one just to work against MRSA. So think of it as like a pretty broad spectrum keflosporin covering a lot of those other things that also works against MRSA. Why would you ever use keftaroline and not vancomycin? You might have allergies and it's also got kind of, we, I, I've never prescribed it. We barely use it in Australia, but um, sometimes uh, against like vancomycin intermediates, Staph aureus, for example, Visa, I think it's right. got some potential use and there's some, it's very, it's rarely used. It's right. not used very often. Is it pretty new? It's new uh, to me. I'm going to call it new. Yeah, it's probably true. Let's call it new. We, yeah. <laughs> Americans might know more about it than me. Um, it was FDA approved in 2010. So I'm going to call that very new. So probably yeah. we're all we're all fairly unfamiliar with it. Great summary of Keflosporin. It's just kind of the most important points, as you said, as you go through the generations, you, you lose your gram-positive cover and you've got increasing gram-negative cover until you get to the fifth generation, which is keftaroline. And the other really important pearl and the stuff you said is, is ESBL, extended-spectrum beta-lactamases, which is a scary type of resistance. That's defined as being resistant to keftaroxone. And so the generations after that, notably kefepime, uh, are, are going to be a bit better against ESBLs. Yeah. And the only other big, well, the, the other big important antibiotic for gram-positive infections, the next one, is one called clindamycin, which we won't bother with the class name to confuse you because basically we only really see clindamycin. And think of that as a good gram-positive antibiotic, which covers some of that non-multi-resistant MRSA that we talked about that also has an anaerobe, um, good anaerobe cover as well. So it's perfect for diabetic foot infections that are often mixed organisms and have lots of skin gram positives and sometimes uh, in, sometimes even MRSA and sometimes anaerobes as well. And it's good because you can give it orally, right? Because MRSA, as we were saying, is usually covered by vancomycin and that has to be IV, but mm. clindamycin can be oral so people can go home on it. Clindamycin exactly. is my favourite antibiotic. Oh. Really good one. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Also has some antitoxin effects. So you'll see that um, hypothetically, so you'll see them use it in necrotizing fasciitis, really high dose, kind of almost double the normal dose, just to, in addition to some of the antibiotics to add on some antitoxin Interesting. Um, cover as well. All right, so that's uh, cephalosporins and clindamycin. So the other category of, of uh, gram-positive antibiotics are kind of the most broad-spectrum ones, notably vancomycin is the most famous one. Can you tell us a, a bit more about those ones, Scott? So vancomycin is the antibiotic we normally use for MRSA or for um, some uh, enterococcus infections as well. It's got really broad gram-positive cover but doesn't have any gram-negative or anaerobe cover. And the thing to know about it clinically is you have to monitor its levels when you dose vancomycin, there's all these different guidelines you can look at for when you do 
dosing level checks, but if you're dosing it, you think that there's a bucket, the, the body of water that the vancomycin is going into. So you do your initial loading dose based on how much the patient weighs. And then after that, you do the maintenance dosing based on how good their renal function is. And then you, you check it a, between kind of um, one and three days, depending on their renal function and work out how it's going. Um, the other important thing to know is people can have an infusion reaction when they get vancomycin. It used to be called red man syndrome. Now they've just changed it to like a four word, 12 um, uh, <laughs> syllable um, explanation instead or something yeah. like vancomycin, vancomycin-related infusion reaction. Oh, my God. <laughs> Red man syndrome is fine. And that happens, like, on the end of the needle, right? Like it happens, yeah, it happens right. pretty immediately, like, while yeah. they're getting the infusion. People can go red, they can get a fever, they can feel pretty unwell, and you can actually... Um, it's, not a, it's not actually an allergic reaction, so you can stop the infusion when it happens, but you can sometimes retrial it a lot slower and see how they go. You give them some pre-medications as well. Um, another side effect is um, acute kidney injury. Um, the other, the next um, gram-positive antibiotics, we don't use a lot um, in Australia if you're not an ID physician, but some of the antibiotics, if people can't get vancomycin or for things like vancomycin-resistant enterococci, are things like ticoplanin, daptomycin, and linezolid. And I just think of them as kind of more upgraded brothers of vancomycin. Um, Tycoplanin is the most closely related. It's in the same class as a glycopeptide. Um, and linezolid has a bit of anaerobe cover. But in general, these are just really broad spectrum gram positive antibiotics. With no gram negative like cover at all. Exactly. Yeah. And like you said, this is not the kind of thing you'll be prescribing as an intern, but um, the infectious diseases team are generally involved in the prescription of the big guns like these. Yeah. So maybe just learn the words. So if someone says them on the phone, you can look them up or write them down. Tycoplanin, daptomycin, and linezolid. Awesome. So that, that was a lot of info on how we treat gram-positive bugs. Could you maybe just summarize that for us, Scott? Yeah. So we're going to try and bring the whole episode together. So the basics of gram-positive cover, we've got our narrow old-school penicillins with ampicillin or benzylpenicillin. Then we've got our anti-staphylococcal penicillins like fluclox or kefazolin. The next level up is MRSA or enterococcus cover with vancomycin or and then the special cases like vancomycin resistant enterococcus um, where you call ID and think about some of these special ones like tycoplanin or daptomycin. And then I guess, I guess for bugs where you're not sure if it's gram positive or gram negative, you can use kind of one of keftriaxone or one of the later, one of the later generation kephalosporins. Some, something like something broad like taz, yeah tazacin or um, meropenem incidentally covers the gram positives pretty well as well yeah. but if you can avoid it we like to because we want to reduce resistance sure. so now we're going to do a clinical case so this is <laughs> and try and resurrect from the dead what's probably been the driest episode of med conversation yeah. so far i don't know so, I, don't, I can't speak for the listeners i've enjoyed it yeah. <laughs> zyla's enjoyed it she has slept through it but uh that's that's a good thing, I think. A good sign. Not, <laughs> it wasn't worthy of heckling. No, so no. revision case. So you're on an unusually cruisy cover shift in the hospital doctor's room playing table tennis against your rival author resident. It's match point. It's intense. You're about to release your patented spin serve to show your colleague that he no longer has a monopoly on ping pong glory, nor on misplaced self-importance and hubris. Two can play at that game. <laughs> then your phone rings. It's a blood culture result. 
Gram positive cockeye resembling staph. Beck, what do you do? What do you ask the person on the phone? Okay, so I've, I'm still bouncing in a menacing way. Medicine way, I'm bouncing the um, the ping pong ball ready to serve. But with my but with my elbow, I log into the um, online chart and I check who the patient is and what's going on clinically. Do I have yes. that information? Yeah. So it, it's a 76 year old man who's got fevers today. He's day four in hospital after a total knee replacement for osteoarthritis. In terms of his vitals, they're mildly deranged. He's requiring two litres of oxygen now, and he's got a mild tachycardia of 110, but his blood pressure is normal. He had kefazolin around the time of his operation, and then then today when he had this fever this morning, he was started on keftriaxone, and that's when they took the blood culture. And clinically, they wrote in their note they were worried about possible pneumonia. So what are the two questions we need to answer, Beck? before we decide what antibiotic advice to give? Okay, so I think um, the first question is, um, we think that this patient has staphylococcus. What is not being covered by his current antibiotic regime? So what's what are the gaps in the keftriaxone? Um, and the second question is, how do we fill that gap? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we. The, the blood culture shows gram-positive cocci resembling staph. So that could be a staph aureus or it could be a coag-negative staph. So to cover staph aureus, keftraxone is okay cover, but we'd probably want um, uh, vancomycin, and that will cover if it's MRSA. And that will actually also cover if it's one of those coag-negative staphs because this man's had a prosthetic joint infection. So it's unlikely, but it's possible in this case that it's not a contaminant, even if it does turn out to be one of those coag negative staph. That's really good um, point. Uh, other gaps in keftraxone, um, it doesn't cover anaerobes very well. Um, and obviously he could have a really resistant gram negative, like an ESBL as well. So they're probably the other things it doesn't cover. Um, the, so, so you're worried about an organism like that, not to do, not, not as a result of this phone call about the gram positive cocci in the blood culture, but the clinical scenario, is that right? Exactly. And that's what we'll try and we'll run through lots of these scenarios um, in a later episode and just try and reinforce this. But we're looking at the gaps and we're also looking at the clinical syndrome and what kind of infections we need to cover. So probably for this guy, we'd, we'd add vancomycin. Given he's already on the keftraxone, that's covering um, gram negatives pretty well. So we probably just leave that for now. And you could consider also adding on flucloxacillin um, as well, just to um, give really good MSSA cover, just in case this is a deep joint infection. Mm. Now, would that, that would be standard practice, right, amongst our day physician to give vanca and fluclox in this kind of setting? I guess I've seen a bit of a variety of stuff clinically done. Look, you could probably, if you were giving Vank and also Keftraxone and he wasn't very sick, you could probably argue to hold off on the Fluclox or to give it. It's probably a bit of a operated decision. And, and when it comes to antibiotics, often there's no right answer. But what we'll try and teach um, you guys is how to come up with a really reasonable option that covers the most dangerous things and gives pretty good general cover. Yeah, and I think what you said, that principle of how sick is the patient, that's really important to consider. Because if they're really sick, you've got no time to waste to, until you figure out, you know, what exactly the, the bug is sensitive to and you probably hit them with something broader or hit them with multiple antibiotics to make sure it's all covered. 
Exactly. If you find yourself sitting there reading endlessly, thinking back and forth between two different antibiotic options, just stop everything and just think how sick is the patient and then mm. um, come up with your plan. And uh, I would I would probably be, um, not probably, this patient needs to be seen. So this is, this <laughs> is not the kind of situation where, where you uh, keep going for a couple more tiebreakers of your... <laughs> Just one, just one is all right. Okay. <laughs> it's a killer serve, Beck. You always win off that serve. It's, it's unreturnable. Yeah. So, keeping yeah. the orthopods in the place is just as important as this clinical scenario. Exactly, yeah. Because you might go and see him and find out that his joint is sore, and that would probably push you towards giving flucloxacillin, for example, to cover really well for a joint infection. Um, and just to kind of round everything up on the podcast, what if it was the other kind of gram-positive cocci um, double? What if it was a gram-positive cocci resembling strep enterococcus? What are the kind of bugs that could be and what would be your antibiotic choice? Yeah, so if it was one of the streps, you know, then I'm thinking back about the different hemolysis patterns. So, you know, is it alpha hemolytic, beta hemolytic or gamma hemolytic? Um, and I guess we don't have that information yet. If it was one of the uh, alpha hemolytics or the beta hemolytics, um, you know, benzyl penicillin would be uh, would be good, but we don't. But that's a pretty narrow antibiotic, and so we might not jump straight into that. Um, and for the more kind of resistant streptococci, vancomycin is a good choice there as well. So I might kind of lean more into vanc. Yeah, I would just add vancomycin because ketraxone. Yeah, exactly. Keftraxone has pretty good strep cover. Keftraxone doesn't cover enterococcus, but vancomycin covers most enterococcus. Yeah. And uh, maybe if you're in a hospital with really high rates of VRE, you might consider one of those um, chatting with ID to discuss one of those fancy antibiotics like daptomycin or something. But if the patient's not that sick, you can probably wait and see what the culture grows in one or two days' time. Mm-mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point you raised there, that keftraxone has quite good strep cover, but not not that good uh staff cover so if, if you if it looks like it's a strep then you can breathe a bit easier apart from you know enterococcus which you might add bank for yeah and that's it that's uh not all not all the bugs as we were hoping but that's gram positive bugs and we'll do the gram negative bug episode soon and then we'll do another kind of revision episode where we just go through and try and use all these principles we've been talking about to discuss how you come up with a sensible antibiotic plan that will impress the ID reg when you ring him. Or her. Or her. Or them. Well, no, the or only them. person who's getting rug is Scott, remember? <laughs> 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 All right. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. That was a really good overview and we're very Thank much you. looking forward to the next couple of episodes. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly timed, just before the leave, end. Leave that in the edit, I reckon.